Now it's time to begin our uh, study, which we uh, actually started several weeks ago on the foundations uh, of our faith. And we started with the first one, the Bible, uh, and you might wonder, why didn't we start with God? And the reason is, even the nature of God would be something we'd have to guess about without confidence in the Bible. So we started with the reliability of the scriptures and examined all manner of things, inspiration and inerrancy and translations and all the rest and archaeological evidence and scientific credibility and historical consistency and all the rest. And so uh, tonight I want to speak to you about biblical authority. And here's what I mean. Everybody here has religious beliefs. And I would like to ask you, you don't have to answer this, uh, but to yourself, where did you get them? You have them. You have notions about God and about eternity and even about salvation. Where did you get those beliefs? In addition, everybody here is engaged in various religious practices. For instance, one of the practices most of us uh, are used to is that Sundays we come here together for congregation. It's a religious practice for corporate worship. We come together. Where did you get your religious practices? Who told you what to believe? Who told you what to do? Who told you how to live out your life? Whatever or whoever told you to do those things has authority, you see, over your religious beliefs and your religious practices. So it's very, very important that you're operating under the right authority. Otherwise, you might run the risk of believing something that is in error or even doing something that is absolutely harmful or unnecessary to do. Now, as far as I could tell, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure, there are only three bases, possible bases of religious authority. One, for instance, is human religious tradition. The worldwide religion throughout the millennia has simply come up with various belief systems and practices. And so maybe the basis of your authority for living life and believing what you believe and doing what you do is simply because you've born into some, been born into some kind of religious tradition, human tradition. A second source of authority is human experience and reason. Maybe you just have made recourse to your own thinking about eternity and about God and about your nature and about the world and so on. Maybe you're relying on your own reason or experience as a source of authority. That's a second one. And then the third one is the Bible. Now, around here, and, and I think I'm, I, I can speak uh, for, for all of us around here, we have chosen the third one, the Bible, as the supreme source of authority over us, shaping our religious beliefs and practices. And that's why the Bible is one of our foundation stones. So while we want to show respect, I hope we do, for human religious tradition, and though we want to acknowledge human reason and experience, we find that the Bible is the highest source of authority dictating to us what we are to believe and what we are to do 
as Christians. So make no mistake about it around here. We don't rely on councils or man's opinion, not even congregational vote. The truths of the Bible are not up for vote. (laughs) We simply submit to the truths of the Bible because the Bible is our highest source of authority. So what we do is to subject all human experience and all human religious tradition to Scripture. We do not do it the other way around. We don't subject Scripture to any other source of authority. The Bible is our highest authority with regard to what we are to believe and what we are to do. Why? Because of the doctrine of inspiration. You recall 2 Timothy 3.16, where Paul said, All scripture is inspired by whom? Yeah, see, so if if God is the ultimate authority, then God's words must have ultimate authority over us. And so that's why we have chosen the Bible as our highest source of authority. God made it clear that the truth which he revealed to us in scripture is inspired and not to be tampered with. We can't add to it. We're not allowed to diminish it. His word is the final authority pertaining to matters of doctrine, what we believe, and practice what we do. And so it says in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. So way back then, God through Moses cautioned the Israelites against compromising the scriptures with any other kind of authority. Have you heard the term sola scriptura? It's not a common one. You don't usually hear that around Clute, Texas or anything like that. But sola scriptura, it's a Latin term. And it was one of the principles leading the Protestant reformers uh, several hundred years ago to reform the then existent church. And it means scripture alone, sola scriptura. And so what they wanted us to believe, and they're right, is that we determine our doctrine and our church practices by scripture alone and not by church tradition, not by human reason or experience. So now all that being said, let me give you an example of how this plays out. If, in fact, the Bible, you say, is your highest source of authority. Some time ago, uh, a lady came to uh, speak with me. She was quite excited and quite a good person who loves the Lord. And I, I think she loved me as well because she wanted for me to benefit from an experience which she herself had just had. And she attributed to this religious experience Good things, benefits. She spoke about a resurgence of interest in the things of Christ. She spoke about an intense love for him and for lost people. She spoke about good things that came to her as a result of this particular personal experience which she was led into by some folks in another church. And because her heart was right and she had a good motive and wanted to spread the 
wealth as she saw it, she told me, Stuart, you must seek and have this particular experience as well, and you must tell others. And I told her, I am interested. I like the effect you say this experience has had on you, and I do not want to miss out on anything God has for me. I don't want one bit less of what he has to offer me. I don't want more, but I don't want less. So I said to her, could you help me to locate some biblical evidence for this personal experience? Show me in the scripture some substantiation for this so that then I could have confidence about its legitimacy and then seek it myself and maybe even encourage others to have the same experience. Well, I, I sort of put her on the spot and in fairness to her, I uh, should have given her more time to prepare. She said, I cannot locate this at this point in the, in the Bible. However, would you give me some time? I will consult with those people who lovingly, she said, led me into this experience. Surely uh, they'll be able to give me chapter and verse, and then I'll come back, see you. I said, well, that'll be good. Well, in a few days, she did this. She came back uh, to see me, and she said to me, uh, she was actually uh, uh, apologizing. Uh, she said, you know, I, I still don't have a chapter and verse for you. I really couldn't find this. And the people who led me into it had a little trouble as well. Uh, the best we could do is this. And she showed me a passage of scripture, which uh, uh, I think at the end of our discussion, even she would agree, had absolutely nothing to do with the particular experience she was uh, 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 talking to me uh, uh, about. Uh, but then in the midst of that discussion, she said to me, you know what, Stuart? It doesn't matter anyway whether I could locate this in the Bible because I tell you just as sure as I am here speaking to you, I tell you it happened. Ah, it happened. So here is a lady who would tell you as honestly as she could, I believe the Bible calls the shots. It has authority over what I think, what I believe, and what I do. And yet, that would be inconsistent, wouldn't it, with the way she was living out her life. She had a subjective personal experience which could not be substantiated by the Bible, which she said was her ultimate source of authority. And then she said, it doesn't matter anyway, it happened. So can you see what she was doing? Probably unintentionally, but she was doing it nonetheless. She was elevating even above the authoritative level of the scriptures, our own personal experience. Folks, we can't be those kind of people and honor almighty God. We cannot do that. Now, I would not deny that something happened to her. I didn't say that. I did not deny her experience. I don't have a right to do that. All I denied is that it was from God. Now, how could I do that? I went to God's book. And there's no evidence of it. In fact, there's caution against it in God's book. Now, I love this lady. And as I said, she meant, well, she was as in love with the Lord as I was. I was no better Christian than she. None of that was the point. But something happened to her and blinded her from that point on because her subjective experience 
uh, uh, was so real to her, it really distracted her from her primary source of authority, the Bible. Folks, could I, could I make a dogmatic statement? If churches are in trouble today, I believe the number one reason is we're not making recourse to the Bible with regard to what we believe and what we do. It's really as simple as that. You could have an experience. The question is, is it authorized by the Bible? We all have experiences. And by the way, if it's not authorized and substantiated by the Bible, we cannot speak to whether or not it is legitimate. All we could do is say it happened. Folks, I, I, I've shared this, I think, before. I could tell you that on the way to church tonight, I was driving, I looked in my rearview mirror, and following me was uh, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich 10 feet tall. I could tell you it got my attention. It shook me up. It distracted me from Houston traffic. It just transformed me to the greatness of the peanut butter. And I mean, I, and, and you could laugh and you could say, what are you thinking? What are you smoking? What do you, what do you, you mean, you can do, but I can tell you, oh, no, this happened to me. This, you cannot disprove it, nor can you authenticate it. Because it is by definition a personal subjective experience. And so many in the body of Christ now are exchanging the objective truth of the written word of God for personal subjective experiences which are no more verifiable than a 10 feet high peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Why do you want to do that when God gave us 66 books of inspired, inerrant, life-changing scripture? He says his word is like a hammer, like a fire. Good night. He spoke the very world we live in into existence. He can transform your internal word through the power of his word. Why do you want to exchange it for some personal experience? Don't you see? So, so, so if you say the Bible calls the shots, if you say you get your marching orders from the scriptures, then that means you have to subject even your very real to you personal religious experiences to the authoritative weight of scripture. And if you cannot harmonize your experience with scripture, something has to go. Which will it be? So to say it happened is irrelevant Lots of stuff happens. The question is, by whom and whose authority? So, you see, this is a dear lady who had some measure of respect for the Bible, but really has exchanged its authority for a different source of authority, namely personal, subjective, human, religious experience. Now, there are other groups who do it differently. Uh, they rely uh, for their religious authority not so much on personal subjective experience as much as on church tradition. So this would be true, uh, for instance, of the Catholic Church, which teaches even down to this very day that church tradition is the interpreter of Scripture. So if you say church tradition is the interpreter of Scripture, then you're saying that Scripture is on a lower level of authority than the history and tradition of the church. Now, the Reformation principle I mentioned to you of sola scriptura absolutely sought to reverse that order of things, saying instead that Scripture is the interpreter of church tradition, not the other way 
around. John Wesley, you remember him, the great Methodist evangelist, stated it well in the 18th century when he said, the church is to be judged by the scriptures and not the scriptures by the church. I've been in places where people have said to me, Stuart, I don't like what you're doing. It's not the way we do it around here. It's not the way we've done it. To which I've said, thank you for sharing that with me. But unless you can show me what I'm doing is in violation of Scripture, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't get you a lot of friends. But it doesn't matter. Don't you see, church practice is not a in an authoritative role above the Scripture. Scripture <laughs> calls the shots with reference to all church practice. So when Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, as I mentioned, all Scripture is inspired by God, do you know he said it at a time when Jewish people at that time had hundreds and hundreds of years of their own religious tradition? If ever anyone would have been tempted to say all Church tradition is inspired by God. It would have been Paul, but he didn't. He only attributed that mark of inspiration to the written word of God and not to religious, man-made, human tradition. Therefore, you, I, ought not be so threatened when we evaluate church practice to see whether or not it remains to be in accordance with Scripture. Don't be so nervous about that. That is a good thing to do. Only scripture is inspired by God, not church tradition and practice. In fact, the Lord Jesus warns us against religious tradition in Mark chapter 7. He said to them, the religious people of the day, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. This is Mark 7 verses 6 and 7. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. You know what the Lord Jesus was saying? Which is it? Sola Scriptura or Scripture plus church tradition? Which is it? You must choose. Now, does this mean all church tradition is evil and to be done away with? Oh, no. Traditions are necessary, beneficial, and quite good. The church that says it's non-traditional is arrogant and lying. <laughs> Any church that does the same thing two times <laughs> has established a tradition. <laughs> Every church has traditions. So we don't want to be defined. Are you contemporary or traditional? God, oh, come on. Let's not get into these categories. Every church is traditional. And it's wonderful to have traditions. We have the tradition of meeting Wednesdays at 6 o'clock following a delicious meal. Wasn't it good tonight? Spaghetti and meatballs. Hey, how much stew could you take? 
We have the tradition of convening on Sunday. We have three opportunities so to do, 8 and 9.30 and 11. Thank God for these traditions, I have to tell you. You know, we don't wake up Sunday morning. My wife and I go, oh, no, what time is it? Where is it located? Where do we go? Thank God for traditions. It makes our lives so easy. It gives us a sense of stability and identity. Our tradition is to go to this church. It's called Sagemont Church. We know exactly where it's located. We know where to park, and we know how to dress, and we know who not to sit next to. We know what the meeting times are. We know when we can go to the iConnect Bible study classes. Oh, thank God for these wonderful, wonderful traditional practices. We know generally the order of service, and we know how things take place, and we know of the opportunities to give and how it works and how to serve. Thank God for these predictable patterns of practice here that make our lives definable, that give us an identity, some mooring point, some structure. So please. Please, tradition is good. I know about this. We sing about this. Tradition. Okay. So traditions are good. However, when church traditions are put on the same level as biblical authority, then we got a problem. See, then we, then we have a real problem. When a church practice, any church practice, even a neutral one, has been continuously repeated over time, let's say over years, if that church practice is changed, e even for good reason, I can tell you what a number of people are going to do. They're going to get real angry and mad, and they're going to think Scripture has been violated because the church practice has become such a tradition, folks have confused it <laughs> with the authoritative nature of Scripture. I'll tell you what happened to me one time. Um, it was a, we were planning a worship service, and we had a praise team. And some churches do, and some churches don't. This, you could do what you want, you know what I mean? It, it's up to the church. And I decided, I went to the worship leader and I told him, you know what, I think it's a good idea. Why don't you ask one of the praise team members, different ones on Sundays, to lead us in prayer before the offering is taken by passing a plate. Now, I notice we don't do that around here, do we? Yeah. So are we violating scripture? No, let's not confuse church practice with, 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 uh, with scripture. The, the, the function of church is sacred, but the form by which we do church is up for grabs. I got to tell you, don't think of church as a snapshot. Think of it as, what do you call it, streaming video? We're moving, for crying out loud. Do you know if a first century Christian walked in here? They would relate to nothing. First of all, they couldn't imagine that we have sustain, meet in, keep up, and own a building. They didn't have buildings in the first century. They would find it very, very odd if we were a church that had hymn books with music in it, that we were using those because in that day there was no written music of any kind. They would find it very, very odd that so many of you have a Bible, one book, containing all the books of the Bible because there they had individual scrolls. Later tonight, we'll have an opportunity to come forward, 
transact some business with the Lord. It's a marvelous custom. It's more than marvelous. You could leave here a different person tonight. But the invitation was, that particular form of invitation would have been very odd and foreign to the first century Christian. Don't you see? So, so we're, we're, I almost said evolving, but I don't want to use that word around here. I'll lose too many people. Let's just say, let's just say the fundamentals remain the same, but, by, but the forms must be subject to change. Listen, I got to tell you something. The church that refuses to change its forms will become increasingly irrelevant in the culture in which it is placed. Do you know, sadly, that's already happening to churches across America. I don't got enough years left, neither do you, to be in an irrelevant church. This is too serious. I want to be with folks like Julie Stobie, and Julie only said that to keep you up, who are really serious about seeking the Lord Jesus Christ and finding new ways to tell the greatest story ever told. Well, anyway, so on this occasion... Um, I asked this guy, the worship guy, if he would have someone on his pray team uh, lead us in prayer before the offering. Uh, the normal tradition of the church was for one of our deacons, wonderful deacons, to come. And usually, I don't know why guys do this, but um, usually the deacon who was scheduled to pray that day would sit, uh, you know, as far away as you possibly could. So when it was time, I mean, you could like read War and Peace before this guy would make his way up there and pray and, and uh, thank God for deacons. But it's an amazing transformation that happens when a deacon prays. He develops a baritone voice. Father. It's, just, it's very deep, and I don't, I don't know what happens. But anyway, so it just happens. So, 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 so this... This worship guy asked this young gal to pray. And I thought, look, we, say, we can save like 10 minutes in the service by having someone already up front just pray. It is kind of, so, she, so, so she begins to pray, and it was just a sweet, wonderful prayer to Abba Father by one of his kids, uh, one of his daughters. And we went on, and I thought it was very delightful, and we saved, you know, we got, we got out of church early and all this kind of stuff, and I thought it was good. No ramifications till three months later. Three months. I get a visit from, from one of the guys in the church, really super guy. And he said, uh, Brother Stewart, I've been meaning to talk to you. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I thought maybe I'd get over this, but it's been three months. I can't sleep. I am so angry. <laughs> and he said, my wife told me, you have got to go speak to that guy and get it off your chest. He said, I'm so angry. What you're doing is unbiblical. So I told him, just let me interrupt you just once, and then I'll let you go on. Just let me say two things. Look, I told him first, the next time I get you angry, it'll happen. Don't wait three months. <laughs> you're going to get an ulcer. Just come and unload sooner. And then the second thing, let me commend you for your statement, because I want to be biblical, and if I'm not, I must be corrected. So thank you for coming. So now go ahead. He said, when you had that uh, young woman pray, you violated scripture. I said, all right. Now, can you show me where the scripture speaks about that? And he wasn't able to exactly. I said, would you be willing to study the the uh, passages of scripture that address the issue of a woman's role in the church. And to his credit, he said, absolutely. And we did for the next actually two hours. 
And at the end, he said, I owe you an apology. I realize now that this particular practice is not unbiblical. But he said, I'm still so very uncomfortable with it because it is so new to me. To which I said, oh, you have my attention now. And I could surely understand. Give it time and it'll become familiar. So this is an example of how a, a church tradition had taken it, in my opinion, so far away from the scripture. Folks, God saves women too. I don't know if you knew this. And they could pray to him as father with full rights and privileges as well. We don't have second-class citizens in the body of Christ. Now, I do believe there are certain limitations on what a woman uh, can do, so don't get nervous. But one of them is not praying in church. Oh, heavens. We wish you would. Those of us who are married, ladies and wives, we wish you would pray more because um, th then you wouldn't yell at us quite as much. You know, you know, you know what I mean? So keep praying. Pray away. So, so, so can, you, can you see how there was, again, a very well-intentioned man. Can you see how we, we Baptists in particular, we're sola scriptura people. The Bible alone, but even us, even us, can so continuously do a particular thing that when that particular thing is challenged, we have a tendency to think, oh, my heavens, we're drifting into liberalism. No, no, no. So... So, uh, sola scriptura. Okay. The Protestant reformers questioned why the church of the day did what it did. And they concluded, well, because we've always done it this way is an unacceptable response. It was an unacceptable response then. It is an unacceptable response today. If the best you can come up with is we do this because we have always done it this way, then you have just made your personal experience and church tradition the highest source of authority over you. The only acceptable answer is we do it this way because the scriptures tell us to do it this way. And where the scriptures are silent... Let's not yell at one another. Let's just allow some freedom and some liberty to do those kinds of things that work today, even though they might not have worked in a bygone day. Folks, I have to tell you this, and maybe I'm missing the point, but I think that every church ought to want to have a future and not just rejoice in its legacy. If you really, really want to honor a church's past, ensure its future. Give to it as your primary recipient of offerings. Give to it and ensure its future. Serve in it with regard to the manifold gifts God has given you in order to ensure its future. Pray for it. Value it, protect it, and defend it if you want to ensure its future. And that's the only way it seems to me to show respect for its past. And, and so it seems to me if there is a better way to do what we are mandated to do, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I told you to do. That's our mandate. That's what we are to do. Therefore, if we can find better ways to do 
what we are irreversibly bound to do, let's do it. And let's not be so bound <laughs> by human religious tradition that we're unduly threatened by new forms of fulfillment of the Great Commission with which we have been committed by Almighty God. Look, a church that has had pews for the last 100 years does not need to continue to have pews for the next 100 years if it can come up with a better way to accommodate the people it is seeking to reach with the greatest story ever told. You understand what I'm saying? So it seems to me, if we want to continue to be a growing and dynamic church, winning people for the Lord Jesus, and, and I know we are, it seems to me <laughs> we ought to ask ourselves the question the reformers did, why are we doing what we do. We ought to question everything respectfully and honoring our past. But we ought to ask ourselves, why do we keep doing what we're doing if we're only getting the results we are getting? Why don't we think of other ways to do what we are tasked to do so that maybe we can get better results? Folks, I tell you this in... Uh, uh, every church is, is different. Um, <laughs> the way we dress is, 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 is a very important thing with reference to who do you want to reach. There's no right way to dress. <laughs> the scriptures don't legislate. Tie, no tie. I've looked all through it. You can't find it. Not even in the book of Leviticus. <laughs> so... So what should determine our attire? Of course, common sense and discretion and not wanting to distract folks from the Lord Jesus Christ so we want to dress modestly and so on and so forth. But the formality of the dress to me is very much a function of the target group we're seeking to reach. And depending on the target group, a church, and there's no right target group, it's up to the church. Depending on the target group the church is seeking to reach, it determines its attire so as not to be an obstruction for those coming in one way or the other. Now, we're fighting, in my opinion, over nothing. There isn't a right way or a wrong way. It just depends on the identity of the church. Who are we? Who are we seeking to reach? Therefore, what forms of church can we create and establish so as to better connect with the target group we are seeking to reach so that we can help them to connect with the Lord Jesus Christ and his uncompromising truth which, with which we have been entrusted. In other words, what a church does in its services must be dictated by Scripture and not by tradition. I had very meaningful experiences as a young Christian. I was brought to a church. It was called Pleasant View Berean Fundamentalist Church. Loose it was not. I was in the military. The guy who led me and others to the Lord brought us to this little country church and and uh, we sang all four verses of every hymn, whether you liked it or not. And I am so grateful for it because those songs, those hymns still pop up in my mind. And the wonderful theology of it is still so very, very meaningful to me. And I appreciated 
uh, the time, and we wouldn't dare go into that church without our best attire on and uh, all the rest. I'm so very, very grateful for that particular experience. But that human religious experience, which was meaningful to me then, is probably not going to be the same religious meaningful experience of the kinds of people out there today. <laughs> and so I have to be willing to be flexible about the forms by which we do church in order for those people to have a meaningful relationship, not with a church practice, but with the head of the church, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, let's go to war if the scriptures are being violated. Let's relax if a personal preference is being violated. Let's relax if a church tradition, even an age-old church tradition, is modified somewhat. Let's relax. We're not showing disrespect. It's the opposite. We're showing respect. We want the perpetuity of the church. Do you know how many Southern Baptist churches are closing their doors every year? Do you know how many Southern Baptist churches have not seen one baptism in the last year? We can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. Vibrant, growing churches, as this is, do not allow their traditional practices to go unexamined. They feel the freedom to examine their practices because the scriptures and the scriptures alone are the highest source of authority. So if the scriptures allow for it and it will work better, I know you and I, all of us, will rejoice in so doing because we want to grow. And in order to grow, there has to be changes. That's just the name of the game. Change generates growth. We must never change the unchangeable truths of the word of God, but we can change a variety of other things because sola scriptura, only the scriptures, they are our highest source of authority. So, Lord Jesus, living word, we bow before you, thanking you and praising you for all that you've been to us, are, and evermore shall be the same. Yesterday, today, and forevermore, some things are not up for grabs. Your person, your purpose, your holiness, and your word, it cannot be added to. It must not be diminished. It has to be submitted to, yielded to, and obeyed. Oh, God, thank you that that is, in fact, one of the core beliefs of this particular church, a theological consistency, but a, a strategic progressiveness. Lord Jesus, just as the church has progressed all through the years from first century until now, thank you, Lord Jesus, that though the function of church is sacred and unchangeable, the forms must always be examined so that we can better accomplish the great commission with which we have been committed. So help us, Lord Jesus, to stay together, not to divide over circumference when the center is Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, you are the tie that binds us together, even in the day of change and fluctuation. Help us to stay strongly united and in harmony around the cross 
upon which you died. And we look forward to the time, Lord Jesus, when you will return and take all members of the church to be home with you forevermore, worshiping you throughout eternity. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.